Welcome to Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a company dedicated to helping all businesses with their people-related decisions. They do that by giving clients access to the best human capital, due diligence, and background checks available on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. To learn more, simply visit www.peopleg2.com. Today we're privileged to have with us the founder and president of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me. My name is Chris Dyer, and uh, I'll be your host for the next hour. In case you're tuning in for the first time, the Talent Talk radio show features a wide range of guests who care about talent and are uniquely talented themselves. On this show, we talk about talent in those two ways. First, as it relates to success and uncovering the secrets of really talented people. And second, we talk about talent in relation to human resources and how HR leaders find the best candidates today. Hopefully, you see how that works. The talent word talent there has two different meanings in the business world, and we look to explore those two areas. My guests include CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR executives, and kind of everyone else in between all around those different types of people. When I'm out at networking events and industry conferences or CEO roundtables, I have the privilege of meeting inspiring leaders all the time. So I created this forum to allow you to listen on our dialogue and learn some practical advice that will hopefully impact your own career in a positive way. Before I get to my guests today, I want to thank those of you tuning in live. Don't forget you can submit your questions to my guests via Twitter. Just tweet them uh, to at peopleg2. Use the hashtag TalentTalk. And my producer, Mike, will feed me the best questions, and we'll try to work them into the show. You can uh, also listen to this uh, show via a podcast on iTunes. You can listen to all the past shows as well. We've surpassed the 15,000 user, uh, 15,000 listener mark for our podcast, uh, people regularly downloading that show every single week. Uh, so you can sign up to have that sent to you, uh, or like I said, go back and listen to past shows. With that said, let's get today's show started. My guests today are R.J. Nicolosi, a partner with the Inc. Uh, Magazine a CEO Project, and Eric Peterson, a senior consultant with Cook Ross. Eric will be joining me in the second half of the show, uh, so let me get to my first guest. RJ, welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. How are you? Doing well. So tell us about yourself and what you're doing with the uh, Inc. CEO Project. Well, as you mentioned, I'm a partner with Inc. CEO Project, and what we specialize in and, and what really gets me passionate is working with entrepreneurs and CEOs of companies that are somewhat smaller but uh, larger than sort of startup companies, so around 15 million to a billion dollar companies that have a faster growth cycle, and we do CEO peer groups with them um, and work exclusively with those CEOs to help them either grow the company or grow the, the margin slash EBITDA of the company. So 15 million to a billion is, is considered small. <laughs> yeah, it depends on your perspective, yes. <laughs> right, okay. Well, my perspective is that uh, those are, well, I guess 15 million maybe could be the top of the small in my perspective, but yeah. 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 So, well, we when we're working with companies, we have to have enough scale um, that those companies' CEOs really have the ability um, and the need, the organization has the need for somebody to actually be a full-time CEO. When you're in smaller startups, which we've all been, um, you know, you, a lot of times you're, you're 90% of the time you're the head sales guy or the chief engineer, uh, and 10% of the time you have to put that CEO hat on, and we really need that flipped around to where it makes sense to, to work with us. Yeah, you got to be big enough to where they've got people handling yeah. all those larger projects, and they can give yeah. their full time to, to that part of it. So you know, as you work yeah. with these CEOs, do you find that there's similarities in, in some of the struggles that they're having in trying to grow their companies? We really do. I, you know, I started as a uh, member. So I was a member for about six years, and then I switched over to a partner. And when I joined as a member, uh, I would have been hard-pressed to think that other people were going through similar issues uh, that I was. But we have a pretty strict rule of trying to get people in peer groups that are not from the same industry because we think after, after getting into your industry and your company, really breakthrough thinking comes from – um, you know, industries and different companies and different CEOs who share, uh, you know, different thought patterns, you know, different experiences, sharing those with each other and then a adapting them to the industry that they're in. But to, to talk specifically about some of those similarities, 
Um, you know, we believe heavily in the theory of constraints, so we think any bl- bl- growing company, excuse me, any growing company um, is constrained um, by, you know, one or multiple key issues. And one of the things that we do in our group meetings is we really help use the theory of constraints to identify those those core constraints that each business um, has. And and what you find after doing this after, you know, year, year over year over year is that, you know, talent, um, business model, process, uh, you know, having effective processes and capital are all key areas, key constraints. Now there's, you know, the details in how they actually get solved can be, can be some, you know, quite different, but, um, there's even more similarity in solving, for example, the talent problem, uh, than you would imagine across multiple, um, different industries and multiple companies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have uh, guests on the show every week talking about just many times completely different ways in which talent, just that one component of those four that you mentioned, uh, are completely impacting their company in a really a unique way. I mean, everyone has has some base similarities and how their issues in finding great talent, but how they do it and, and where they have to look and how they interact and where they go. I mean, all these things are, are can be very unique to every. Uh, company or industry that they may be going, and you made a really good point early on about uh, in your response there, kind of talking about getting different perspectives and opinions from different types of companies, kind of getting out of their industry yeah. pocket there. And I know when I the roundtable that I'm involved in, CEO roundtable, that was one of the most important things that I really got out of it was you know there were some companies that were in similar, we you know, kind of sell to the same people. Um, but we're very different, mm-hmm. and, and there's also other companies that are completely different, their products versus services and things like that. And it was amazing the amount of kind of insight and uh, creativity and things that suddenly start popping in my head, you know, going through that, uh, having different people do that, and just even the process of trying to brainstorm for them, uh, how yeah. much that kind of helps uh, in your own business. Kind of, It's almost like exercising that muscle in your brain of, of thinking uh, through that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That I mean, the the innovation comes from, you know, having a, a a CEO who thinks like a software engineer, a CEO who thinks like a CFO, and a CEO who thinks like a, a salesperson all in the same room tackling the exact same issue. But then, you know, the, the exponential creativity that comes about having those three different perspectives um, on equal footing where everybody's just trying to help each other out, right. um, no ulterior motives. Uh, can be can can create pretty powerful breakthrough thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. So, are there specific tools or keys to success that you try to you know get each of these CEOs to understand that will really help maximize their success in in the area of growth and performance? Well, I th- you know, I, I, there's a number of tools, but really the main tool is the decision making process and how that flows throughout the organization internally and externally. So. We talk a lot about um, velocity by which uh, decisions get made and the quality by which decisions get made. So, um, and, and then the filters those go through. So, so you know, you have in our world we think of um, primary and secondary constraints as well as you know primary and secondary opportunities. So, primary constraints and primary opportunities are things that you know ultimately should be board level discussions. And so those. You work with the board, but before you, you sort of bring that to the board um, and others, you, you really should have talked internally about what's going on, what is the real constraint, what's the root cause, and then what are some ways that we think that we can fix this. And then, um, you know, certainly we're big believers, obviously, in getting external perspectives. And so on those primary, you know, those big opportunities that really could uh, catapult the, the organization to, you know, 100% growth in a year or two, um, or primary constraints that could, could really significantly hamper the opportunity of the, the business. We believe, um, you know, getting the best of senior management's input on it as well as the best of, you know, the, the external infrastructure that you've put in place, um, to really beat, beat through an issue and come up with a good solution. So those, that's really the main tool is we, we think the CEO, is ultimately responsible for um, making great decisions, um, which usually lie in, in resource alloc- allocation and strategic intent. So really thinking through the strategy and the forward movement of the company, and also then, you know, once you've started that process, 
understanding how to to execute that and allocate resources, whether those be um, capital or talent, um, and and making sure that you're doing that properly with that infrastructure and and making the, the appropriate decision at the appropriate time uh, is a really important feature set um, of the CEO. Well, and, and my next question to you was going to be, you know, how much does proper talent really play in the success and the growth of a company? But I think you've almost just kind of answered that because you're talking about, you know, how important the CEO is, how important the senior management is, how important the, the key players are in a company, and how important a board is as well. And those are all talent-related issues. Those are all, you know, Oh, ab- absolutely. Yeah. yeah, a lot of time when people think of talent, they think of, you know, do I have the brightest software engineer? Do I have the best... Um, you know, financier, you know, there's, there's very technical areas that we think of finding and retaining talent. But the truth is, is that for a CEO, finding talent, um, at the board level, at the advisory level, and then at the senior management level, those are all really important decisions that they have to make. And, 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 but we, with that said, um, is, I think the truth of the matter is that it's the second most important thing on a CEO's plate. A CEO can never forget capital, um, and and that sometimes doesn't ring. You know, a lot of people don't necessarily like that comment, but the truth of the matter is, is there's there's no um, ability to to attract and retain talent if you don't have enough capital on hand. Um, but then, you know, you will not get a good ROI on your capital if you don't have a strong mm-hmm. team and talent and business model. So, absolutely, talent is absolutely critical to the success and growth of a company um, and and that comes from proper management of that talent and you know we, we're big believers in what we would call goal cascading so you, know, you believe you, know, you set up that strategy you have an appropriate business model you have appropriate talent now it's a matter of turning that strategy into you know annual and quarterly goals and allowing those goals to cascade down through the organization in a way that um, people three levels down can really uh, identify with what the strategy is and understand their, you know, how their job plays into that. How do you make sure that, that people three levels down understand that? Because I know that's a challenge sometimes for people in trying to, you know, it's it's fine the goals are set, strategy set by the CEO board, you know, his involvement with senior management, and they may go down one level, but then a level after that, it's almost like that t- telephone game when you're a kid. You know, things get lost, yeah. um, even if they're written out, even if they're, in black and white for everyone to see, but how do you really make sure those people understand that, you know, to a level that's digestible, that's applicable, that's, you know, even doable for them? Yeah, I I would say there's sort of old school and new school ways. So the old school way that I've done multiple times is, you know, you set, you know, in, in old school, I don't think can necessarily carry the velocity that new school. So obviously when I'm saying new school, I shouldn't say obviously, but I'll, I'll, Give away the secret now. When I say new school, I think that there's some fast-paced platforms out there that that do this for you. But you can do it without software, and and I've done that before. Is where you have annual posted goals, um, then you have quarterly management team goals, and the CEO. I mean, the big problem with this, whether there's software or no software, is accountability within the organization. And I think in fast-growth companies, that is absolutely one of the Achilles' heels. And it's not because these companies aren't led by competent CEOs or competent management team. The fact of the matter is, is when you're growing at 20 to 50 to 100% a year, people's jobs and the processes they execute on a, on a monthly, quarterly, annual basis are, are changing quite rapidly. So mm-hmm. the thing that I did last quarter to be successful may not be, and probably is not, the exact same thing I need to be doing this quarter. Um, but you know, going back to your direct question, is you can you can do something as simple as making sure that the CEO, when you're reviewing those quarterly senior management team uh, goals, are holding that management team accountable to those goals and making sure that they're cascading that down to their direct reports. Um, now, there's some exciting software out there that is starting uh, to really do that kind of stuff and do it well. Um, but uh, you know, it, it's a pretty new field, at least from a software standpoint. So, you know, one of the things that uh, we're always kind of in our in our world talking about, and a lot of what those people that are listening to the show have been on the show are talking about is that, that kind of cost of, of a bad hire. And mm-hmm. have you had an experience of maybe going to one of these companies and 
maybe upon your assessment, you kind of look around and wonder why the people are in the places that they're in or the positions that they're in, and maybe you could talk about that and maybe how you helped them or, or directed them to you know help recover from this. Well, let's first of all start with I've had a a chance to lead four four organizations myself. Not only do I see it in other people, it's you know it's. I, I want to be careful here. I, you'd see it all the time in your own organization. You know, most of the time, the leader knows that that's there, and they know that they've got a problem. So it's not necessarily, um, you know, I, I feel bad saying that, yeah, I can see that in other people's organizations, and they can't see it themselves. Most of the times you can see it, you are hesitant to act on it because there's other mitigating factors. So, you know, as a coach, when I come in and I find those mitigating factors, you know, normally results speak for themselves. So, you know, there are only a couple times, and I can go into those, but there's a co- only a couple outliers where somebody is a bad fit, but their results are matching or beating expectations. Um, and one of the things that we do is we really help our CEOs manage and measure by a balanced scorecard on a quarterly basis, which includes uh, talent management and talent measurement. And, you know, if you've got a, a, a player that you think has the ability to be an A, but has ex- been executing at a B minus or a C plus for the last three quarters. You know, it's time for me as your coach to really say, what's going on there? Is that, um, you know, the role is incorrect? The person needs to be um, mentored or coached, um, or do they need to be repositioned, or do they need to be exited? And at the end of the, you know, a lot of times I think CEOs. Um, they're so busy with so many different things that sometimes they don't put the effort they need to to making sure that the organization is accountable around the talent, uh, you know, not only retaining but growing segment of the business. Um, that's something we believe pretty strongly in. We believe that, you know, there should be a significant amount of your time that is going into managing talent um, and, and making sure that if you do have a bad hire that you are recognizing that and you're getting good at, at releasing those people or repositioning them very, very quickly. So for the ones that you're going to keep that maybe need to be mentored, what are, what are CEOs missing or what are maybe some of the things they should be doing when it comes to actually developing those employees as leaders? At the, at the most basic level, um, it's what they're missing is time, planning, and execution. So they need time. They need to carve out time and realize how important it is. So we would suggest around 20, 25% of your time should be spent in this coaching model. We, we believe every CEO has sort of five hats as a coach, an architect, an engineer, a player, and a learner. And as coach, we really think you should be spending 20, 25% of your time. It's, it's one of those places where it's a really high leverage position. So if you can turn a B player into an A player or a C player into a B player, there's massive long-term impact for the organization, especially when you get that to that middle senior level management. Um, and most CEOs, especially ones who are entrepreneurial in nature and have started their business themselves, uh, will say the next product, you know, I'm going to go out and create the next product or I'm going to go out and, cre- and, and win the next sale. And I certainly have been guilty of that myself. But that is a one-time blip. Certainly it is good in the short run, but it doesn't have a multi-year impact necessarily always. Um, and so when you say what are they missing, they're, they're missing how important it is and prioritizing it and making sure that there's time around it. And that in that time, they're planning and executing their coaching strategies um, and, and really holding their their leaders, the people who report to them, accountable for doing that, doing the same. Because what I see a lot of times is, you know, the growth cycle for for companies is they go from entrepreneurial to really in a growth mode. So they scale from that 10 million that, uh, up to 30 or 40, and then they have another sort of readjustment phase, and then they scale from, you know, 40 or 50 up to 100 or 150 million. And and every time that's a different team, that's a different set of skills. And by different team, I don't necessarily mean different people, but it certainly means, um, you know, being the vice president of operations at a $5 million company is significantly different from being the vice president of operations at a $100 million company. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest changes is managing and growing and leading talent. So this coaching area that we're talking about, you know, when you're at a $5 million company and you have, um, which by the way, I've, I've run a couple small companies, so there's nothing wrong with that. But it is, you can, at that small of a company, you can be much more focused on the service or product that you've got. Um, and, you know, you hire a couple of 
people you've known from from other careers and you know they'll execute and they know you and you just are out getting it done and that can be a perfectly um you know great scenario for lots of people and, and exactly where they want to stay and, and it'll, then the company grows and it gets to a 20 or 30 million dollar company and all of a sudden that vice president of operations doesn't have three or five people working for them they have 50 or 70 and that takes a very different skill set much less involved in the service and product much more involved in the process, the systems, the metrics associated with it, and, of course, the talent management and talent acquisition and talent growth. Well, it sounds a little bit like uh, kind of as you grow, the bigger you get, the more that CEO is going to spend time developing and coaching. You know, They're, they're going to keep their eye on the ball on what's happening with the company, where it's going, but it sounds like a you know, great deal of what they're going to be doing is it's almost like you could use a sports analogy, I mean, turning into being more of the coach than they actually being the player who's out there, you, you know, participating you're you're going to spend more time developing those people to go out there and do the work would that be a fair example absolutely absolutely and i think you know the the sports analogy translated to baseball works really well so you have your coach the skipper but then you have the general manager and um you know so you'll see as companies mature and they get a ceo who then promotes a president that president really is more the skipper, the field skipper, and and you know making that, you know, making the hard decisions about hiring and firing and demoting people to minors and you know making that third baseman a, even a better third baseman. Um, but then there's the general manager who's really counseling the skipper on, you know, where should people go? Do we have the best talent? Looking throughout the system, saying, do I need to go find more talent or do I need to attract more capital so that I can put you know can we feel the better team you know are the are the rules of the game being laid down the way they are so even the role of a ceo is quite different at that 20 or 30 million dollar role uh company to the 100 or 500 million dollar company it's a very different set of skills and and investing in your you know one of the things that i think ceos miss a lot is investing in themselves Mm -hmm. um they get so focused on growing um, you know, growing their business and growing their people that they forget that they can outgrow themselves. And that's a that's a dangerous place to be in because if the business outgrows you as an owner, which is a very different hat, you know, you have to you have to value your equity more than your title. Yeah. Um and realize when, when that business has outgrown you and and figure out what to do about it. Well, we're almost out of time here. I want to make sure we ask uh, one of our favorite questions, which is mm-hmm. uh what are you reading right now? <laughs> Great question, frequent question. Um, well, I, I end every day with the Bible, so I sort of have to say that. I, I'm definitely in that a lot. But I, I usually have two books going. I'm a big fan of historical fiction. Um, so I have an old school book, um, one of the first historical fictions called Exodus by Leon Uris that I'm reading right now. But I'm sure the one that you really care most about is my business book, which I usually always have one going as well, and Revenue Disruption by Phil uh, Fernandez is the book that I'm reading right now, and and I think you know some of the stuff, and, and that's about revenue process management, which at a high level is the nickname he and others have given to the changing world of marketing and sales. And and if this is not something your listeners have heard of, I'd say one of the the really revolutionary things that we're seeing. I you know I probably end up talking to a hundred to five, you know, a hundred to two hundred. Um, CEOs that are on the Inc. 500 or 5,000 list on a yearly basis. And over the last three to five years, it's become clearer. I think when I started, about 5 or 10% were doing marketing differently and really treating marketing as an important part of the company where marketing is driving a lot of inbound leads. And I would say it's, it's close to 50 to 55% of the companies that are high-growth companies that are coming up through that list are now selling and marketing in a very different way than we would have even 10 years ago. And I think that it's a real revolution that's going on, and that's exactly um, you know, what Phil Fernandez uh, is talking about in Revenue Disruption is the fact that the value proposition has now clearly shifted to the buyer, and the buyer gets to shop through your website, through the stuff. They have to know that you're there. They have to be able to look and find you know, anything from podcasts to um, white papers to articles uh, about you and your company and what you think to demos of your capabilities and services. And then when they're ready, they engage. And when they, they're they ready, uh, you know, your sales force 
sort of gets involved in, in that process and really treating that as a almost an engineered process in the same way that you would treat an R&D for a, a chipset um, when you're coming out with a new electronic component is the level of sophistication you really should be treating around sales and marketing. Sales and marketing is no longer an art that only a very well high-paid salesperson can close. Well, it sounds like a fascinating book. Um, we're just about out of time, so if you let our listeners know, uh, how can they reach out to you or you know, if they fit that category of a small company and 15 to million to $1 billion, uh, how, how do they find out more about the Inc. CEO project? Absolutely. You can go to our website at www.inkceoproject.com and you can contact us and obviously you can you can always email me which is just my full name rj nicolosi and icolosi at inkceoproject.com and we'd be happy to talk to anybody we love talking to people who are passionate about growing their businesses and growing their their themselves and their team's capabilities rj thank you so much for being our guest today it was a real pleasure having you and we look forward to maybe getting an update from you down the line have you back on and Maybe even talk to some of you, the people that you, you help in that project uh, and have them on the Absolutely. show. Okay. Absolutely. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. And Eric Peterson is coming up next after this quick commercial break. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. And let's give a shout-out to our sponsor of today's program, Talent Talk Radio Show. It's brought to you by People G2 Company, founded in 2001, dedicated to helping clients with their people-related decisions. They do that by giving them access to the best human capital, due diligence, and background checks available on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and much more. People G2 recently named one of the best places to work right here in Orange County, as well as one of the fastest-growing privately held companies by the Orange County Business Journal and recognized in the Inc. 5000 list of fastest-growing privately-owned companies nationwide. To learn more about all the good things happening at People G2 and the good things they can do for you, please visit them online at www.peopleg2.com. That's peopleg2.com. Or you can check them out on Facebook or Twitter as well. People G2. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. And now back to Chris and his next guest. Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. Just a quick reminder, you can subscribe to the podcast of this show or listen to Pat's shows by clicking or visiting octalkradio.net and clicking on the Shows tab and, of course, clicking on Talent Talk. In the short time the show's existed, we've already amassed a huge following. We said just over 15,000 now. Uh, so we really want to thank everyone for being a part of that. My next guest, Eric Peterson, Senior Consultant at Cook Ross, is coming up. Don't forget to tweet your questions live right now for Eric by sending them to at peopleg2 and the hashtag talent talk. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe your background, how, you know, how you before you started uh, with your current company, and then of course what you're doing with Cook Ross. Sure. Uh, well, you know, I've been in the diversity and inclusion space for about 15 years now. Uh, started working in a large consulting firm on the inside. Uh, helping them do their diversity and inclusion work. Uh, for about five years, 
I was the manager of diversity and inclusion at the Society for Human Resource Management, and they are the largest HR and diversity association on the planet, um, with about a quarter of a million members. Uh, and so I was helping to lead diversity initiatives uh, for all those folks across industries. Uh, moved to Cook Ross in November, and Cook Ross, we say we like to say we're on a mission to transform the entire world one organization at a time uh, by making them more conscious about their decision making. It has a lot of tie-in. Uh, to the diversity and inclusion work that I've been doing in the past. But we talk a lot about unconscious biases and how the unconscious mind can hijack your decision-making and force you to make decisions that are maybe not the most objective and maybe not the most sound uh, for your business. So we're getting into the brain science side of this whole diversity question. It's really fascinating work. So as a senior consultant, the clients you work with are kind of looking to transform their company culture. How difficult is it you know, in this task, you know, for some companies to really feel like they've accomplished that transformation? Well, it, it can take years of work. I mean, changing a culture is not something that you do overnight. And a lot of organizations, I'd say the biggest challenge is that we sometimes face as consultants is hearing, you know, a company say, you know, we want everyone to go through a two-hour briefing and we want that to change the culture of our organization. <laughs> and, you know, we're happy to come in and talk to them for a couple of hours. Um, but it really takes some dedicated work. It's going to take some blood, sweat, and tears on the on the part of the client uh, to really make that transformation happen. But we're really lucky to have uh, quite a few clients who are really committed to the kind of transformation they want to do. That's going to be, you know, far and above the most important criteria uh, that we look for when we're looking for clients who are really uh, going to achieve all, everything they're looking for is whether or not they're willing to put in the muscle uh, behind uh, what we what we aim to do. Um, and so, but I think it is possible. It's just, you know, it's one of those things that you have to know that you're setting yourself up for a big challenge when you say we're going to change the culture of our organization. Cultures are very resilient. We like to say that strategy eats culture for breakfast. Uh, you know, uh, or, or rather culture eats strategy for breakfast. I said that wrong. You can have a brilliant strategy, but if your culture is, is set in its ways, it's going to take a lot uh, to move that needle because oftentimes we're so unaware of our culture and, and how much of an impact it has on our daily behaviors um, that it's hard to really see what's right in front of you sometimes. You know, and that's a great uh, Peter Drucker quote, the uh, culture eats strategy yeah. for a lunch man. It's just one of, one of the better ones that I can remember of his. It's interesting. I mean, we we've used this couple sports analogies today, so I guess we're just going to keep on this road. But you know, I've had people talk to people about whether it's culture or something else they want to change within their company. Um, and I've used the sports analogies. You know, he had a team that was, you know, football team that was doing really good at running the ball. And you said, okay, guys, come in and huddle up. And guess what? We're going to be a passing team now. <laughs> it just doesn't happen that way. I mean, just from from a, yeah. from a sports standpoint, you'd have to change your personnel. You'd have to change your maybe your coaches. You might have to change your plays. I mean, there'd be so much of a go into that. And in a sports organization, they can just trade people, get rid of people, bring new people in. And it's a lot different for an organization that's invested into people. You're probably not just going to go and dump an entire department just because you want to change your culture. You're going to have to work with the people you have to train them, develop them. And to your comment earlier, it may take years to do that. Uh, it's just not going to yeah. happen in a two-hour uh, symposium on uh, why why we're going to change this new thing today. Exactly. You know, and, and, and a lot of times, you know, you, you make changes, and if the changes are for the better, uh, oftentimes you'll find that people will, if the economy is good, uh, people will voluntarily leave. They'll say, I don't like the direction this is going in, or it's simply that I just don't feel like this is a good fit for me anymore, mm -hmm. uh, so I'm going to voluntarily take myself out of the equation. That will sometimes happen. Um, one of the things that, you know, another one of the little witticisms that we throw around is that only wet babies like change. Uh, that the idea mm -hmm. of, of changing, even if people realize that the end goals are really positive and really important, the process of going through change and, and culture change in particular, uh, can be kind of painful for some folks. So you're going to have some voluntary turnover, um, but it's not going to be everybody. Most folks, especially when the economy is, uh, not quite on the most solid ground like we're experiencing right now, uh, people are going to hang on to their jobs where they can get them. And so it's really then a matter of uh, coaching some new behaviors, people giving people the access to, you know, explain to them in plain language what the old behaviors were that we're not going to endorse anymore, what the new behaviors are that we're looking for, and then a little bit of patience to, you know, really coach people through them and a lot of resources available for folks so that they can adopt this new way of being. Um, and you're right, it can take a really long time for that to take root because, 
you know, that's the way we've always done it around here is a really powerful draw for people. People like things that are predictable. Uh, and so if a company's been doing things in a certain way for a good long amount of time and it seems to have been working thus far, uh, it's going to be really difficult to kind of, you know, steer the ship in another direction. Do you have any examples? Of, uh, uh, and we don't need any names or anything that would be, you know, specific enough to identify anybody. But do you have any examples of maybe kind of what something a company was doing that now they want to do that as far as, you know, changing their culture? Uh, it can be as simple as moving from uh, a performance evaluation system where a manager simply writes up the entire performance evaluation for their staff to moving to a 360 degree kind of performance evaluation where all of a sudden you have to take input from a whole bunch of different people. I think a lot of people would look at a change like that, and that's certainly not, I'm not even talking about one company when I say that. A lot of people have done that recently. Um, and it seems like a really good idea on paper until managers all of a sudden have to interview 10 people for every performance evaluation they want to write, and that just becomes you know, a, a pain, and they, they don't want to do it. They really resist. They try to figure out ways to work around it, and, and what they don't think about at the beginning is what if I hear a lot of positive feedback for someone I was going to give a negative review to or a lot of negative feedback for one of my favorite people? Then I have to factor that into this performance appraisal, and I don't want to. Uh, and so changes like that can be, you know, until people get used to doing it that way, and that becomes the way we've done it around here for a while, uh, you know, people are going to resist those kinds of changes. And sometimes they'll resist them openly, and sometimes they'll resist them very passively aggressively. Uh, and, and organizations really have to be on the lookout uh, for those kinds of passive-aggressive forms of resistance to these kinds of changes. Mm-hmm. So from a talent manager perspective, are there often times there are maybe difficult talent decisions that you recommend that the, to the leadership of a company, such as removing someone from a leadership position or firing someone altogether because they continue to be negative or kind of push to transform the culture? I mean, and if, and if that's the case, how is that often received? I mean, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I, I've been lucky enough as a consultant that I've never had to make that recommendation to any clients of mine. Uh, that somebody at a, at a very, you know, powerful place in the organization needs to actually be taken out. Um, and I don't think that would be my first, you know, uh, recommendation to my client anyway. Uh, rather than focusing on specific people and kind of painting someone with a brush of this is a bad person, this person should not be in this place, I would more take a look at, you know, we might want to take some zero tolerance around certain behaviors. You know, let's all get on the same page that certain behaviors are just not going to be tolerated anymore and then make sure that the senior leaders of the organization really put some teeth behind that. If they're going to say, we're not going to put up with this kind of behavior from our, our you know, our, our land managers anymore, then you have to follow up with that. Um, and so the end result of that might be that somebody loses their job, but I don't think because I, as a consultant, you know, will point the finger at a specific individual and say, that person's got to go. Um, I'm not saying it'll never happen, um, but I think it's pretty rare. And, and yeah. in my career as a consultant thus far, it's something that I haven't had to, to, to deal with. Well, like uh, it's like really more about the behaviors that you're looking for and the behaviors yeah. that you're trying to avoid as opposed to the, the people. Because I think people are, are changeable. You're, you know, the, the idea that an old dog can't learn new tricks isn't even true for dogs. Certainly not true for people. Uh, you know, there's this, there's this idea that if you've been in a position for a while, you're not going to be able to change. Um, and the human brain is, and the human uh, personality, uh, is very adaptable. Uh, they just need, uh, an environment where you can make those changes, you can make a few mistakes along the way, uh, and you can really, you know, you have to, you have to believe that the change is something that, that needs to be done. And so a lot of times it's just achieving that mind shift. Uh, within somebody, and once they've got it, uh, they can move it. So that wouldn't be the, the first place I'd want to go anyway, even if I was dealing with a leader who wasn't quite giving us what we were asking for. Luckily, as a consultant, most of the time we're working with organizations to senior leaders really want to change for the better, and they're bringing us in specifically so that we can help them do that. Um, so, so thus far, it, it's not been an issue for us. Well, and as you said, sometimes people will, you know, choose to leave. They'll go ahead and opt out themselves, and I. Uh, we wondered sometimes people can really dig their heels in, but it sounds like either people have, in the work that you've done, either chosen to to work to improve or to change how the company wants that change, or yeah, maybe they realize they weren't going to get away with stuff anymore, or do it the way they want to do it, whatever their perception might be, and they may have opted out themselves, which certainly is a better scenario than you having to, you know, go back to your client and say, listen, everything's going great except for this one guy in this one department you know, where where things are really having a, a challenge. So 
I'm wondering if there's... Yeah, and in those cases, we'll certainly come back and say, maybe we can offer them some coaching. You know, maybe we mm-hmm. can, you know, maybe work one-on-one. I mean, a lot of times when you have those quote-unquote problem cases, which I don't ever want to say that a person is a problem case, but we have some individual enacting some problem behaviors. You know, you, there's a lot of things that come before uh, showing them the door. Um, and, it, you know, it's a lot of coaching. And I think it's important for not only that individual, but for everyone in the organization to see that we're, we're really committed to this change, but at the same time we're patient and we're going to work with folks uh, and we're going to give people every chance to, uh, to kind of conform to this new way of doing things that really is more embracing of diversity and inclusion than we were before. Do you notice a common theme with the companies that you're being brought into? I mean, they could be high growth. They could be suddenly, you know, uh, not reaching their, their, their goals. Uh, maybe their company, you know, part of their culture is changing their culture every so many years to kind of keep things fresh. I mean, do you notice similarities about the people engaging you? You know, I think that, that now because I'm working with Cook Ross, and again, our, our focus for a long time has been this, this really focus on uh, the unconscious mind and how it affects the way that diversity and inclusion happens. A lot of our clients are coming to us because they want to do diversity and inclusion in a new way. Uh, they have been doing diversity and inclusion the same way since the 80s, and it got them really far throughout the 80s and the 90s. And then over the last decade or so, they've just noticed that their efforts have kind of stalled, and they're not where they need to be. They're not at the finish line yet, but they're just not making the same kind of progress they have been uh, for a while. Uh, and so they want to look at this whole diversity and inclusion question through a, through a new lens, from a different angle. Uh, and one of the great things about unconscious bias work is that it, it precludes the, the use of guilt as a tool to get people to do things in a different way. The idea is that we all have biases, uh, we all have automatic thinking, uh, and we all take mental shortcuts all the time, each and every day. Bias is not necessarily viewed as a negative. Uh, by our team, but more is just a fact of human existence and human cognition. Uh, and really the answer is not to get rid of your biases, but just to raise them to the level of consciousness so that you can therefore make a more objective decision. Uh, and it's been, you know, our clients have been really pleased uh, with, with the work that we've done. And, and a lot of times people will come to me after a session on unconscious bias and say, wow, that was not what I was expecting in a good way. They have a big smile on their face when they say that. Coming to a, a session on diversity and inclusion, they really thought they were going to get a checklist of here's what to say, here's what not to say, here's what dignity and respect looks like, which everyone kind of knows already. What we're not always aware of are, are these breakthroughs in cognitive science that have really only happened over the last 10 years. Uh, they really are teaching us how we think and how we make decisions and how sometimes our conscious mind is completely overridden by something that exists in the back of our brains that makes a decision for us before we're even aware that a decision has to be made. Uh, and so it's fascinating on the one. I mean, it's fun uh, in that standpoint. Uh, but it also is just a different way of looking at this that it allows you to tackle an old problem in a new way and get some results that we haven't seen for a while. So in your opinion, what's the best type of CEO or maybe talent manager, the person who's kind of in charge of all this, to have in place when a company wants to create that culture shift? Well, I think someone who is, uh, who's open-minded, first of all, you know, who, who seeks to be a change agent. Um, I think a lot of times that, that traditional leadership, uh, you know, what you learn in an MBA about what it takes to be a good leader is really all about how to embrace the status quo and how to build clarity in organizations for people. People think that the primary responsibility of any leader is to make things a little bit more clear. For their staff, and I think if you want to be a leader in times of change, if you want to lead somebody through culture change, it's not so much about making things clear, but it's about building a greater tolerance for ambiguity. It's all about we don't know, and that's okay, and we don't have to know everything right now, and we need to kind of be able to sit with that level of discomfort um, and not necessarily have all the answers. I think a lot of leaders uh, feel comfortable when somebody asks them a question that they know the answer to. Uh, then they feel like they're in the right place, they're competent enough to be in that leadership position, and sometimes it's a leader who's able to say, you know what, that's a great question, and I have no idea, <laughs> and we're on this journey together, and let's figure it out. Um, it seems like a very basic personality trait, uh, but that's really, really key. If you're going to lead a, a group of people through a big uh, change initiative, you have to be comfortable with this idea of not quite knowing everything and not being the, the answer person uh, who's always got, uh, you know, who, who can see the future five steps down the line. Right. Um, 
And, and it's that kind of open-mindedness that we're really talking about when it comes to a good, change-oriented leader. So I wanted to ask a, a little bit about you. Uh, maybe when you kind of consider your own personal leadership development and can kind of figure out maybe why or how you got into these different things you're in with your current company now and working with Sherm in the past, and maybe who ha- who or had kind of the most impact on your own personal leadership development? Well, I have to say, you know, uh, Howard Ross is the leader of Cook Ross, and, and uh, he is my boss right now. So I'm not just saying this to score points of the boss because he's been a friend of mine for 12 years. Uh, and he was the one who introduced me to this whole field of unconscious bias work uh, quite a long time ago. And so he had an enormous uh, impact just on the way that I see the work. And also, he's just been a, a great friend of mine. Also, my previous boss, uh, Shirley Davis, who is still the Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion at SHRM, uh, she really showed me, I think, what leadership can do and how leadership can behave. I was just telling a story about her earlier today, how she used to come by my desk and say, Eric, I need a thought partner because I've got a question that I'm wrestling with. You know, can you come by my office at one? And people would overhear her and they would say, did she just call a subordinate a thought partner? Uh, and I'd say, yeah, that's kind of the, that's, that's the kind of boss that she is. Um, and it, it took people by surprise because you're not, you know, you're supposed to have all the answers when you're the boss and your subordinates are just supposed to do stuff for you. Um, and, and that's not, that, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and she certainly didn't lose any credibility by using that kind of language with me or anybody else. In fact, everyone who ever heard those comments thought it was great. And it was always surprising to me how few of them emulated that <laughs> and took right, those kinds of right. behaviors <laughs> on for themselves. Um, you know, you don't have to uh, to know every little thing. And, and she really taught me, you know, how to treat people in a way that really is going to engage them and get the best out of your folks. I grew so much in, in five short years uh, working for Sherm, specifically because that kind of leadership was available to me. And I think Howard was, was saying the same thing at a little bit more of a distance. Um, and when I decided that it was time to move on from Sherm, uh, Cook Ross is the first place I went to and said, hey, is there a place for me here? And I was, was so grateful that uh, they you know, snapped me up and said, absolutely, come join our team. Is there a specific skill or technique that you feel maybe kind of contributes to your role now in the work you're doing, but you had to work on over time that maybe you weren't so good at it when you started? You know, a couple things. I mean, I think that, again, when you're when you're there to talk diversity, you expect a certain amount of resistance to what you're saying, but you, you kind of feel like the, the moral side is, is you know, yours, uh, and that you can kind of claim <laughs> some, some moral high ground when you're the diversity teacher and someone is arguing with you. And I think really for me it's been about listening, uh, really understanding what somebody else's viewpoint is all about and noting that even if they disagree with me and even if they're never going to convince me, of their side of the story, that they have a certain narrative that they live inside, and that if I had lived their life, I might very well feel the same way that they feel uh, about a certain issue. And so uh, I think it's just been relaxing my own sense of righteousness uh, around the diversity space has done a lot for me uh, in the work that I do. I, I feel like I'm a much better listener than I was before, and I was very resistant uh, to any uh, pushback around the DNI question. When I started, I was a real crusader when I joined this field a long time ago. Um, and I really felt like justice and fairness and righteousness was exclusively within my domain. Um, and I've loosened up on that a little bit. I still feel like I'm doing good work. I still feel like I, I'm very proud of what I do. Um, and yet I'm, I'm able to hear other points of view now and really take them in uh, because I think you have to do that to meet people where they are. Uh, and do the kind of work that's actually going to accomplish something in a client organization. And so listening is so foundational for any kind of consulting work, but it's that listening from that moral angle, I think, is a real challenge for people who work in this DNI space. So, you know, the people that are generally listening to our show are, are here to learn something new and to be inspired or to get a good idea or, or what have you. So one of the things that we love to ask our guests uh, are, is, what are you reading right now? Interestingly, right now, um, an old book I'm rereading is The Difference by Scott Page, um, which I think is still, you know, got a lot of great uh, insights to kind of uh, show in terms of the way that diversity and inclusion works. I'm a big fan of novels, actually. I'm reading a fantastic book right now called The Goldfinch uh, by Donna Tartt, and it's really, you know, for me, opening my eyes to a lot of diversity um, uh things that I hadn't really thought about before. I mean, I would love to grab a bunch of diversity and inclusion professionals who've read this book um, and, and talk about kind of what it's, it's bringing up for them. It's about a young man who 
uh, is faced with some circumstances that I won't get into because I won't ruin it for you, but it forces him to go to a completely, he's, he's raised and born and raised on Park Avenue, uh, and he ends up in a couple of very different env- you know, sets of environments as a result of, of various life circumstances and how he adapts to those. Um, and I'm, I'm seeing that a lot of the things that I've been studying in the diversity space are really being validated by this really incredible story. Um, so, so that's kind of two things that I'm focused on uh, right now. Of course, my boss is coming out with a new book in, in June, and so I'll be reading that as soon as it comes out and passing it around to everybody I know. Uh, so that'll be the next big thing on my reading list as well. Great. One of the things that we do also like to try to find out about is get people's perspective on their creative process and how they brainstorm effectively within their teams or within management. Do you have any tips or suggestions on, on what you do to be effective in that way? You know, uh, one of the things that I, I'm a big fan of is uh, gathering resistance on purpose. I think so much of us run away from, and, and I, I absolutely do this. I, I try to create a, a presentation that's so persuasive and amazing that no one has any pushback to it. <laughs> you know, as soon as I, I bring something up, and, and what I've learned is that it's not so threatening if you out and out ask for it. And so when I come up with uh, an idea, um, oftentimes what I like to do with a team of people around me is say, okay, let's poke as many holes as we can in this raft and see if it still floats. Um, and that way when people do bring dissenting opinions forward, it's because I've asked for them. Um, but that kind of dissent can often lead us to much better decisions. We can uh, avoid some of the resistance that was going to be out there anyway. Um, and we can we can eventually build a much stronger product as a team. And I think that we we – we're a very conflict-diverse group, at least maybe just maybe just those of us in the diversity and inclusion space. We're trying to build a more harmonious environment for all of our client organizations that we kind of see conflict as the opposite of that. But if you invite a certain amount of conflict in, then it's not something that you take personally. It's not uh, something that, that needs to hijack you emotionally, but it really adds to a much more intellectually robust conversation about where you can go. Uh, so that's something that I like to do with teams is really kind of say, okay, dissent is the name of the game. Let's go uh, and see what we can come up with. And actually, it come, becomes kind of fun. Um, and, and again, you end up with a with a much better decision oftentimes at the end of that conversation than you had when you started. Well, uh, certainly we've learned quite a bit today from from you, and we really appreciate you being on the show. One of the final things I want to make sure we, we get from you is how can people get a hold of you or learn more about uh, Cook Ross if they're interested in, in having you help them out? Well, uh, our website, which is currently being redesigned, uh, that's one of my other side jobs at, at Cook Ross is working on a new website, which we hope to unveil sometime this spring. But our website is out there. It's www.cookross.com. You can follow us at, at Cook Ross on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me personally at, at Diversity Eric. And if you send me a note uh, via the Twitter machine, I will certainly get back to you. Um, if you want to write to me individually, it's Eric P, E-R-I-C-P, at cookross.com. Uh, is my email. So anybody who wants to hear a little bit more about what Cross could do for your organization, I'd be glad to take those calls. Eric, again, thank you so much for being our, our guest today. It was a real pleasure having you, and hopefully we can uh, check in with you down the road and, and see how you're doing. I certainly hope so. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you again to my special guests, RJ Nicolosi and Eric Peterson. Tune in next week at the same time, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, for Talent Talk brought to you by People G2. Next week, we will have Jeff Dunn, Campus Relations Manager, Senior Recruiter from Intel, and Kevin Cruz, New York Times bestselling author and keynote speaker on leadership. Until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2.